Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Let's go back uh, to your upbringing in the northeast of England. Tell us about that, please. It was it was a, a, a wonderful, wonderful upbringing. I must admit, we were a, a big family, um, Irish descent. Not a lot of money about. We, we were we were pr- pretty poor. There was um, nine of us in a in a little three bedroom terraced house. But to be honest, I've got loving, I've got lovely, wonderful parents, and uh, they brought us up very well. And it was the happiest the happiest childhood one could have. That, that, that's lovely to hear. I, I mean, I, I understand you, you've got an army of brothers and sisters, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I have. Uh, how uh, many of each? There's, uh, there were seven of us, so I've got um, four, brother, four brothers and two sisters. And then uh, four, two of your brothers were, went on to be professional boxers. They did, Gary, Gary and Sean both both did. Any good? Okay. Were they yeah, any good? They were, yeah, they were okay. We had some pretty we had we had some pretty hairy sparring sessions, I must say. So so they they kept me on my toes. And uh, one of your brothers, David, um, as if your parents blessed them, hadn't already got a big enough Irish family. Um, he was uh, adopted or fostered into the family. Yeah, that, that David became number seven when we were just toddlers. My mother, you know, very low income and and. You know, very little we had, but she was. She has. She's an angel. She's, and, and you know, so is my dad. They're just fantastic people, and they, they decided that we needed a bigger family. So <laughs> in came, in came number number seven, David into um, which was I must admit my first, my first feelings of David was was, you know, a, a, a little bit sort of angry and all that because he got my bed. I had a bunk bed, which meant then I had to share with my two other brothers, Gary and Sean. Right up till I was 18. Yeah. Bearing in mind, they were the two fighters in the family. Not good. So you can imagine what it was like even in bed we were fighting. Well, we'll hear more about David um, because he's, he's inextricably intertwined uh, with your own life and success. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, Glenn, as we're going to hear over the next couple of hours here on TalkSport, um, you're a man who can turn his hand to many things. We know from your work on Sky Sports, you're a pretty smart bloke. How did you get on at school? Absolutely terrible. I, I, I hated I hated school. I can still remember the first day at about four year old. My mum dropped me off, cried my eyes out, sat in the sand pit, hated it every single day. And the only record I got at school was for for not turning up. And then the last the last year they they just give up on me. I just didn't bother going. It was it was because at that time also it was kind of I was a little bit rebellious and a bit of a bit of a bad boy. If How I'm, bad, Glenn? If, well, just you know, just just sort of playing truant, and you know, trying to <laughs> try to steal the letter from scrapyards and 
stealing, you know, that sort of stuff, a little bit of... Uh, me and David used to go to the local superstore, and I hope they don't hold this against me, but he was great for a little bit of shoplifting. You could always hide stuff in the back of his wheelchair. So I was a little bit... Hang on, your brother's in a wheelchair, and you're using him as a mobile shoplifting <laughs> device? Goodness. He was, great, he, was, he was the greatest decoy that we had. We had a, we had a, <laughs> we had a great little scam going on, because nobody ever was ever suspect us. So a few little, you know, a few little things, nothing bad. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think... I could have I could have been heading the wrong way, and I must admit that I think boxing boxing saved me. But I, the one thing I was good at at school was was anything athletical, be it football, rugby, uh, athletics. Um, and the only thing I didn't do at school was was, was boxing. In an area, as we'll go on to talk about a little later, of uh, particularly as you were growing up there, tremendous unemployment, um, and you're not trying particularly hard at school. Idea in your mind what you wanted to be, Glenn? Well, to be honest, I thought I thought like like my uncles. There was two two industries in Northwest Durham. There was Constant Steel Company, and there was the mines. Yeah. And, and that, so growing up, I thought, you know, what do I need? What do I need to stick in a school for if they're going to send me down underground? And I had a real you know nightmares about the steel company and and the pits you know because it was um i'd see that you know my uncles all died with the pits so i was probably the one person in the northeast that was glad that mrs thatcher closed them all but what it did do was provide the biggest we were the biggest unemployment black spot in the whole country how did you get into boxing and how did you develop as a young boxer the boxing has always been in my family. My family, um, my granddad was a, was a champion in the, in the forces. Um, his brother boxed for the, the European title, um, under, but he boxed under the name of Jim Palmer, but his name's Jim McCrory. So my dad was going to take my, my, my brother to uh, take Gary to a, a weightlifting gym up in the, the local sports center at concert. And I just, you know, being a, being a 12-year-old wanting to, wanting to go with him, start to start to pester them and all and they wouldn't let me go so i cried <laughs> so so they took me they took me along and and i remember to this day it's so vivid memory we looked in we went to go and gary was going to train in the the in the weightlifting gym and i opened the door next door and it was the boxing gym and it was just i opened, i just remember seeing the collar you know the bright boots and the the vests and the gloves and, and it was just action and all of a sudden it was like whoa i can see it as vivid as vivid as ever I see the faces exactly as they were the coaches the boxers you know who skip <laughs> everything it was it was just all of a sudden that was something that i wanted to do but i still loved you know i loved football i was uh, you know george best was my hero and then supermac supermac mm -hmm. came to newcastle so you know he took over as 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 a as a massive hero, but I think the moment that changed my changed my life and and give me the give me the the inspiration made me want to be a fighter was Muhammad Ali. I remember, and it was probably a recording. I don't know how long after I seen it, I went and saw it, but it was 1974, and it was George Foreman. He was a man that was. Was supposed to get beat. Was it was never gonna, you know, he was gonna be destroyed or worried for his life. And he said he was gonna win. And he said what round he was gonna win in. And then he did it. And from that moment, he was my. That was it. He was my hero. Boxing yeah. was all I was ever gonna do. You uh, you were pretty good amateur. Yes, I, I I had a natural knack for it. I've always had a bit of a stubborn, bit of a rebellious streak, if I'm honest. And what really happened was, was, was terrible was I, I won the junior ABA championships 
But I was also playing football. You know, I was district and county football. I was a county athlete, captain of the rugby team. You know, and I loved I loved doing all sports. I remember one, I just won the, the junior ABA national title and it was our school assembly and they, they got, you know, they, they were giving out medals for who, and it was who'd won the Stanley Cross Country and who'd won this and who'd won that. Local little things, the, the Stanley District football and... And they never mentioned that I just won, that I just become the British national champion, and that never mentioned at all. And and my teacher said to me, "You're not going to get on the football team if you if you carry on boxing." So that was it. So I, I just quit everything. I just quit everything, you know, and said, "That's it. I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to box." And you got better and better and better. What stage did you realise? I suppose when you start to come to national recognition um, in the ABAs as amateurs, um, you must start thinking about turning professional. To be honest, I never. The amateurs, I never really had a great deal of inspiration in because my heroes didn't wear vests. Amateur boxing was just, for me, it was, you had to do that to get into the pros. So although I was I was quite successful and I, you know, I managed to represent my country and, 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 and proud of that, I just wanted to be a pro. The sooner I could get that vest off and fight for real, I would. T- tell us about turning pro then, please. My my, my coach had gotten a... Had a Struck up a relationship with a man called Doug Bidwell, who had Alan Minter as a as a manager, uh, managed Alan Minter. Went on and to be a world champion himself, of course. Yeah. Yes, Alan was Alan was world champion. I think around about that time, and and they struck up a friendship. He said, "I've got a good, I've got a good youngster." If I'm honest, I should have looked into it a little bit more and, and and looked about, but I didn't know anything. So we signed. I turned professional. I had at 18. I had my first pro fight at 19. And I was only a light heavyweight, so I was only 12 stone six all through my amateur career, and I was, you know, I was just 19. But he had the, an opponent, a small, a smaller heavyweight, so a, a cruiserweight really. But the cruiserweight division hasn't been established no. at that point, so he 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 pulled he, he pulled out a few weeks before. So they brought in undefeated heavyweight called Barry Ellis, who'd mm-hmm. had three fights, won all three, and this was gone. This was taking place in somewhere like the one of the hotels in in Mayfair and Colin Hart was there you know the top the top press was there and I was just you know I was just a little fight on the bit I was petrified I was thinking this is going to be you know I'm fighting the undefeated heavyweight I'm I'm you know I'm 12 stone 10 kind of the best thing happened but the worst thing happened I knocked him out in 90 seconds and or you know Colin Hart wrote back page of the sun the white bruno and so my 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 career was launched Right from then, so there was no way, there was no way I was ever going to be a light heavyweight. So straight away, it was then all about putting putting weight on. Yeah. Trying to bolt me up, and what that did was just make me after after a good start. Um, I think it was 13 or 14 successful wins as a heavyweight. They then put me in, and I was only 20. They put me in with a a big local guy called John Westgarth. I I was starting to struggle because I was starting to become slower you know they they bulked me up and i knew things you know i wasn't as good in the gym i wasn't i wasn't as uh, as quick and i was you know i was getting tagged off fighters i could beat much much easier and then the inevitable happened i got i got stopped i got i got beaten yeah got beaten by as you say by john westgarth i mean the, the early months and year of your fighting career as was the the way back in those days, I don't think it's quite the same now. People are much more closely managed. You, you had a lot of fights, um, you know, you, as you say, 10 or 12 fights in just over a year and a half. Um, what was life like for you then? I mean, uh, were you earning a living from... Uh, no, you, it was very, very hard. I was being paid, I was being paid peanuts 
my manager um, had me in, in digs. I was subsidizing my fight money. This is how bad it was with going on the dole. So that was very hard. And I also had a, I had a girlfriend and, and we had lots of problems between me and her up here and, and eventually I had to get married. So there was, there was a lot going on at that time that was really, 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 you know, disturbing and, and, and hard for me. And I think the whole thing just took its toll and I went through a really bad patch. We're going to hear in the rest of this program about how you um, become a cruiserweight and go on to be world champion. And it's an unlikely story, Glenn, if you think that between, I say, you lost to John Westgarth at the Gateshead Leisure, Leisure Centre, yes. um, which you just described how difficult that was. Then you won a fight in Gateshead of a man called Roy Skeldon. Mm -hmm. And then in the following, between April and October of 1986, you lose four fights on the spin in six months. I mean, that would be enough to put the end to most people's idea of being um, a professional boxer, never mind being a world champion down the line. What happened to you then? I'll give you the names. I mean, you, you probably remember Rudy Pika. Yep, who was, who was undefeated, very, very, very good fighter, you know, who was a house fighter that was at the Albert Hall. What happened was, I think my manager, his dream got, his dream got busted that I wasn't going to be the next sensation. I was taking fights at five days' notice because I was, I was on the dole. My, the final run, Trevor Curry, who I'd handled easily and spawned years before that, I, I got knocked. I got knocked out in two rounds. Didn't yeah. do, I didn't 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 do didn't train at all for it. The only thing I did was some pads because by that time I'd left London, didn't have a gym, but needed the money. And I, I the only thing I did was some hit the pads with my with my wife holding the pads. I had, had no trainer. Where were you doing have that? Anything. That was for the Trevor Curry yeah, fight. But, but where? Where? I mean, where was your in wife? My, in my house in Stanley. What, you know, in I'd the got, front I'd room. Left, in my front room. <laughs> That's how bad. That's that's how bad my my career was being looked after. When you lose that those consecutive fights, and you say you're clearly not even training for some of them, did you feel like packing it in at all, Glenn? Very much so, and I was getting loads of pressure because my my then wife hated me boxing. She didn't want me. She didn't want me to box. She wanted me to get a job. So I was getting lots of pressure from from her. I was on you know I was I was on unemployment benefit. There was no you know no employment in the northeast and i had no qualifications so it was very very you know we got a house taken off us a little terraced house that we had it was it was real dire times and you're trying to you're trying to then fight you know good quality opposition uh, with no 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 trainer no gym you know just doing it on your own so it was a desperate time but i remember on one of my early fights at the grosvenor park it was about my sixth fight i boxed in front of muhammad ali was the guest of honor wow and it was Henry Cooper. I think Ali was over for Parkinson, um, the Parkinson show, and yeah. then he was he was doing a, a boxing show, and it was at the Grosvenor Hotel, I believe. So I got the chance. This is early in my career, about my fifth or sixth fight. I got the chance to fight in front of my hero, and I boxed, and I didn't box that good because I just wanted all I wanted to do was relate something to him, just to tell him how much how much I thought of him, how much I admired him, you know, how much I loved him. So I did the alley shuffle and wound my <laughs> arm up and didn't box very well, but I won the fight. So afterwards, I'm upstairs and I'm taking my boots off and Jarvis Astaire, the, the famous promoter. Big-time promoter, yeah. yeah. big-time promoter. He, he popped his head around the corner and said, McCrory, fasten your boots. Muhammad Ali wants to meet you. Can you imagine? Muhammad Ali wants to meet you. I ran, you know, got ready, went down to see him. He put his arm around me. He, he pulled the old Ali face and he wanted pictures with me. And he was, you know, he was absolutely 
just the most wonderful, wonderful man. And he said, mark my words, mark my words, you will be world champion. You will be world champion. And I just thought for somebody to take the time to a, a, you know, a youngster that he didn't know anything about was a marvelous thing. So the one thing that all through all this bad times, and I knew there were so many reasons why it wasn't going right. One was my weight, you know, I was starting to be, you know, I was fat and out of shape. And, and the problems I was having at home in my relationship was, was, all, was all adding to, to, to that sort of thing. But the one thing that got me through was I thought if Ali saw something in me, if Ali saw that, you know, Ali was always right. He was always right. So it was then that it all sort of fit into place. I was, after the Curry fight, I was very depressed and I got, I got ill one night. You know, we had no money. I was, I was sitting, eating a load of chocolates and rubbish. And, and I went upstairs and was violently sick, violently. I must have caught a bug and I was ill for three, for about three days. And then I went up, my mom lived about four doors up. And I remember I went up to my mom and they were like, oh my God, what's happened to you? Because I'd lost, I must have lost the stone in the hall. Mm -hmm. And I was like, do you know what's happened to me? I'm, I know exactly what's happened to me. I'm going to be champion now because I'm a cruiserweight. I know exactly what's wrong. I'm, you know, they feed me all this rubbish on my dole money. I hired a little um, fruit and veg, above a fruit and veg shop. There was just a little tiny room. And I, I got my, my dad's friend uh, to put a, a hook up there and we hung up, we hung a bag. And from that gym, I won the British, the Commonwealth and the world title. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Um, you mentioned that you were a good footballer as a kid and that your own heroes uh, were George Best and uh, Malcolm McDonald. Um, I take it, uh, like a lot of people, because uh, you come from that part of the world, Newcastle United were a big thing for you. 
very, very, still are, very, I presume. Yeah, very much so, very much so. Yeah, still are. I've got, I've got a kitchen that overlooks St James's Park. Really? But I think my, my, my love affair. It's funny if you're in, if you're in Durham, you'll find that your know, people at different ends of the street either support Sunderland or Newcastle. You know, it's one or the other. My family, there's me and David support Newcastle. The rest of the family are all Sunderland fans, and you know, one of them, my brother Neil. He's he's a season ticket holder and has been you know and he's a massive fan. <laughs> so on, on um, derby days you can, they're quite tense. <laughs> yeah, they would they would be. Can you remember? I mean, there's that advert currently running, I think, on Sky TV um, uh, with Alan Shearer remembering his first time going to St James's. Can you remember going to the ground the first time? Do you know my 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 first memory is going past the ground because we went we went to um, as kids as little kids and my dad's all beat up. Ford Cortina, so there's there's six kids and my mum and dad in the Cortina. We were going to an orphanage. My mum was going to find a, a, another brother and sister, and we went past St James's. Went over the bridge, went past St James's Park, and from from someone that grew up in little small terrace street in in, in Anfield Plain, it was wow. It was just this was just something amazing. And then we went to the orphanage. The rest is history with David. He became David McCrory, but it was first seeing the ground. So it was, it was actually driving past the ground so let me get where a, let I me... became I became a Newcastle fan, and I became a love affair. I live in Newcastle. And, you know, most of my adult life I've lived in Newcastle. Now let me get this right then. When you went to get your adopted foster brother, whatever your brother, let's call him, that was also the day you first saw St James's Park. I mean, that's just incredible. Yeah, we were. I, I think I was seven. David was six. We'd never been anywhere. I mean, we went we went to the the local coast in the caravan for our holidays. Um, you know, so, you know, we, we were you know we had very very little money wise, but mm-hmm. we had we had we had loads and loads of love. So it was um, it was a it was a wonderful family. And you never you know when you when you're young, if you haven't got the a design, we didn't know anything about designer stuff or anything like that when we were kids. We didn't care. No. You know, we were fed well and we were loved, and and that's all you need. Well, listen, as you say, the, the, the footballer of your generation, who was your hero, uh, is, of course, uh, still very much a Newcastle legend, is Malcolm McDonald. Super Mac, as you called him at the very top of the show. <laughs> Delighted to say he joins us on the line now. Hello, Mac. Hi. Hello, Danny. How are you? <laughs> very, very good indeed. And, uh, of course, a former guest on this show. You see, you see the effect you have on young men. They go on to be world <laughs> champions, but what they remember is you playing football, Malcolm. <laughs> oh, dear. It's a sad life they lead, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> well, I was, Glenn, I was saying you? Before, I'm, I'm great, Malcolm. I'm great. It's lovely to hear from you. Um, but my, my, my memory is, you know, why I was centre forward. And, and you know when when Supermac came in, obviously you wanted to be you want you know, I wanted to be Supermac, didn't I? Because I was I, I once got an award of Pop Robson for scoring the most hat tricks in 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 the, anywhere in the area. Malcolm, you know Newcastle United, the the, the kind of story has become um, that they, they they don't win trophies. You were in a Newcastle team, the one that uh, that uh, Glenn was watching, which was good enough to reach cup finals and was a pretty was actually a very good team in its in its own time. Yes, it was. The real mystery for me is um, that after having been there four years and, and, and you could sense, or, or, or despite the fact that we lost in the 1974 FA Cup final to Liverpool, we were absolutely shocking that day. Liverpool weren't much better, to be honest, um, but they, they turned it on a little bit in the second half and finished up winning 3-0. What amazed me was 
But um, at the end of the following season, Joe Harvey was just dismissed. Mm-hmm. And yet Joe, he, he's, um, he is the last um, trophy winner um, as manager of Newcastle United um, to this day. Let me ask Glenn, and then you've got Malcolm there to make the comparison, if you like, Glenn. Um, you've been to some of the, the biggest boxing matches in the world, in your, uh, both as a fighter and more recently in your role at Sky Sports. Is it possible to compare? Because one, of course, is the most individual sport and the other is very much the world's favourite team sport. Is it possible to compare the crowds and the atmosphere at big boxing matches and, let's say, at St James's Park? Very much so. Because it's, cl- it's closed in, it's closer in the boxing Obviously, they have bigger crowds at, at, at football, but boxing's it's right on top of the action. So you know, but it's very it's very very similar. If if you've got a if you've got a great game, it's uh, it's wonderful. And you know, we've just proven recently with a with a Froch Gross fight that boxing can even fill Wembley Stadium. And and last week it it held it. it the Kingston Rovers ground that you know stadiums we you know boxing matches can fill just for, just for for fights. Malcolm, have you ever fancy pulling on the gloves yourself? Um, <laughs> do you know? Do you know I, I just wanted to know. I, I, my, my, I think I had a lower body strength rather than upper body. <laughs> um, uh, um, in, in actual fact, uh, I remember seeing a profile of Rocky Marciano, and he and I had very, very similar physiques, except his arms were much bigger, whereas my legs were much bigger than his. Um, and, and I just thought that's incredible because I'm only f- sort of I'm less than five foot ten, and Rocky Marciano was one of the great fighters of history, and yet he was only a, he was only a short fella. Yeah, he was five. He was five, five ten and a half. Rocky Marciano. Yes. I mean, incredible that people, some of these great great fighters of the forties and fifties, um, heavyweight champions, Glenn as well. You should make the point. And now they'd they'd have, they'd have to be fighting on a step ladder because they're fighting actual giants but, now. But actually, when when you think about it, Mike Tyson, was was one of the the one last of the example, small, I guess. Yeah, yeah, he was one of the the small heavyweights. But but you know, if if you if you if you train right, there's ways of you know Mike Tyson learned how to to make the most of his size. You know, he'd get under he'd get underneath the the tall heavyweights and then and then get inside them. So, you know, he made it work from same as, but the fight same as come, Malcolm the, did the, on, on the football the field. The fight is coming up now between um, Tyson Fury and Klitschko. Malcolm, or even Rocky Marcin, would have been mascots for that one. I mean, it's, just, it's ludicrous now. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> no. Malcolm, it's very, thank I you so much. I would have been so, in a miniskirt. Um, <laughs> with, with the ring card, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to, I'd pay to see that. <laughs> Malcolm, <laughs> listen, short but sweet, Malcolm. Thank you so much for joining us and just giving us a flavour of the, uh, the, the hero that is of tonight's uh, guest, Glenn McCrory. Thanks, Malcolm. Oh, no. Cheers, well, my good. pleasure. Good luck, Glenn. Yeah, Bye, absolutely. Mate. And Glenn, you know, uh, Malcolm McDonald, he's a southerner, um, but he's made his name and his reputation at Newcastle. That's all part of the thing that I think that people who support many other football clubs don't understand the size of the city with just one club, and it's also bang in the middle of it. People find it hard to understand just what Newcastle means to the community. You could say there's three sports in Newcastle, football, football, and football. And, and it's that sort of, you know, Newcastle United is everything. On match days, everybody is just talking about what's going to happen. To be right in the centre of the city and for that many people to come and to have, you know, when we've been disappointed and we've had bad results, but 54,000 people, they cram in there. You know, and I really, really hope we can we can get some, Steve McLaren can, can get some silverware because 
if ever a club is, is as passionate or ever the fans are as passionate, nobody can beat Newcastle United with, with pure passion. And we really, really, everybody just wants to see some silverware. Uh, Glenn, uh, we spoke earlier about the difficult early days of your boxing career, including those four successive defeats. But uh, you did get back to winning ways over Joe Adams, a uh, fight in, in, in America. Um, and eventually you beat a number of guys, including Barry Ellis, who I think you, you met in your very, very first fight, on the way to becoming the Commonwealth title holder. Tell, tell us about winning the Commonwealth title. Well, the Commonwealth title was, was obviously, it was a major title. And just to, to go from the, the terrible run I had to, to suddenly, you know, finding myself and getting the right weight and things all going good, my sharpness coming back. And I'd had a, I had, I'd met a, a, a trainer in America called Bo Williford. So he invited me over. To, to fight in America, I had a couple of fights out there, sparred with the, the fabulous fighter called James Quick Tillis, who learned, learned me so much about the, the pro game because I hadn't really had a trainer till that point. I, so I learned everything by sparring. I learned everything in the gym from that. And it just went doing very well. Then I got a, I had a fight. They brought me, Frank Warren brought me in to fight a fighter called Andy Strawn. And Andy Strawn, they were building back up. He'd been the British champion. And I think they thought that because I'd had the bad run that it you know this is a good a good win for Andy so they brought me in and I, I knocked him out so that all of a sudden made me that, that got was an me, eliminator yeah so that got me the Commonwealth title shot where it was it, I think it was meant for it was meant for Andy but it was me that it was me that got it so that was that was the beginning of it and and shortly after I won the Commonwealth title I gets I got a phone call saying would you then it's James Tiller saying, do you want to spar with Mike Tyson? So let me get this right. You, you've beaten the Zambian, Chesanda Muti, to become Commonwealth title holder at Cruiserweight. And then you get a phone call from Quick Tillis saying, do you <laughs> want to spar with Mike Tyson? Do you want to spar with Mike Tyson? And it was, they said, the money's, the money's going to be rubbish, Glenn, because they, obviously they don't think you can, they don't think you'll, you'll hack it because he's knocking everybody out here. I mean, people like world champs, like Oliver McCall were sparring partners, you know, for Tyson. So it was, it was you know, it was a pretty... Awesome thing, but I thought, I thought, you know what? This is going to be the best experience of my life. If I can hack it in sparring with Tyson, if I can do something, what confidence I'm going to get? Because I lost all my confidence through a bad run. So I thought, you know, no better way than to throw yourself in the lion's den. I hadn't made very much money for the Commonwealth title fight, um, and I thought I'd go out. They offered me $200 a week to spar with the meanest man on the planet because they thought, they thought I'd. I, w- I would only last a day or so, but I was there. F- I was there five. I was there five weeks. Well, I think we should and make sub- the po- we should make the point. You were a very good defensive boxer, Glenn. I mean, that will have held you in good stead against Tyson. Well, I, because also being a cruiserweight, I was very very quick. So you know, I, I learned I learned to to get to survive. To I mean, you you'd only do a maximum of you do two rounds or four rounds. You'd yes. use five different spawn partners, and there was only once I ever. I, I, I give Mike a, a black eye. He got a mark around his eyes, swollen up a little bit, and they didn't spar for a couple of days. And I'd done it. And so um, Mike Marley, who was the New York Post reporter, was there. Well, he made, obviously, you know, Mike Tyson, skinny little Irish kids just um, just beating, because they, you know, McCrory, they, they, skinny little Irish kids just beat up uh, Mike Tyson. So it was, it was full page of the New York Post. It did great for me, except it was the only time that I had to do six rounds with Mike, which were the toughest six rounds of my life. And I think it was payback time for Mike. But but it was it was a great experience. Did you and, get to uh, know him well? 
Yes, very well. Yeah, very well. How did you was, find um, him? How did you find him? Because of I course, was, his reputation was... been in prison all the rest. How did you find him, Glenn? On I, a personal I, I, level? I found I found him at that time. At that time, he was wonderful. He was, you know, he was with Kevin Rooney. He had a great, a great team around him. He was very, very, you know, he was very, very friendly. He was vicious, totally, totally ruthless. Would knock, would knock, knock fighters out without any care in sparring. But then was very, very friendly and very nice. He loved the fight that had come over, and I think. All all of those bar partners were, were were black and had trainers with them. I was I was a white kid that come mm-hmm. in with no trainer, and I think you know. And I got in the ring with him and and you know gave my best. And I think I earned his respect. And I th- I think you know for him it was like whoa, either this kid's nuts or that you know that did it that won him over. So he was he, Mike was great with me. Um, a few years later, after when the wheels came off his career, um, I, I then the next time he saw me was standing. You know, and he thought I was just a rough kid. I, I didn't have any money. He knew I was a rough kid. He knew I was, a, I was um, tough and was poor and didn't have anything. But the next time he saw me, which was weird, I'm standing with a suit on and a microphone in my hand. And uh-huh. it was like, <laughs> but he, you know, by then he'd had a bad time. He'd been to prison. Sure. And and then then we got the other side of we we then got the dark side of of Mike Tyson. And that was that was a bad that was a bad one because he never. He, he, I think he thought I'd kind of sold my soul to the press, and he didn't like the press. Um, so we had a funny little relationship. But he, we'd always end up getting interviews because of my friendship. Absolutely. He would always give us an interview. And you, I know, I know, you sparred nearly a hundred rounds with Mike Tyson by the end of it, which obviously held you in good stead in your boxing. Because uh, in the next fight after winning the Commonwealth title, you were fighting for both the British and the Commonwealth a title against a man called T.J. With these two crowns, did you think you were on a road to being a world champion? I'd always believed I'd be a world champion. I always thought, you know, that that was my goal. That and that was that was my only goal. Everybody all my life said from school, from the boxing club, for everybody I met, no, you'll never be a world champion. You'll never be a world champion. So that's all I got. So it was almost pure defiance that I was gonna be a world champion. Nothing was gonna stop me. Well, in June of eighty uh, nine you do get a chance to fight for the cruiserweight title. Uh, of the world with the IBF version of the, of, of the title against Patrick Lumumba. This is extraordinary, isn't it? Because you're, you're one of the very few people who gets to fight for a title in the village they were born in. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's literally true, isn't it? It is, it is. I actually walk, I walked up the street. I walked a few hundred yards up the street from my home, a terraced house at the bottom of Stanley Front Street to the top of the street to go to the fight. And I remember, I remember as I walked up the street thinking, what's going on in Stanley? Because all these people with dicky bow ties on. And I walked up, and it was surreal. I was thinking, what on earth is going on in Stanley today? And then there was crowds waiting for me when I got to the top of the, to the leisure center. And I was, this is for me. <laughs> and it was just, it was, it was just so, so surreal. And Patrick Lumamba, as I say, uh, was a, he'd been a world amateur champion, so, and he was a tough cookie. He'd also been a sparring partner with Mike Tyson. Tell us about the fight, Glenn. Well, the, the, I think I've got to tell you before the yeah, fight yeah. because it was it was a pretty tough moment for me at the morning of the, the fight because I, I got the paper and as you said, Parallel Mumba was a world amateur champion. He was very avoided. You know, they had to give him fights with heavyweights. He was a, he was a rough, tough, something of a nasty personality, um, and that people avoided him. Nobody wanted to fight Parallel Mumba. And and when Evander Holyfield moved up, you know, surprise, surprise, I knew he would he'd be the one that I would get. And I remember on the day, Colin Hart had also witnessed, um, who, who, who Colin's a great friend of mine, and I think the world of him. Mm-hmm. But he, and, and you know, he, he launched my career 
But then on the on the the day of the fight, there, there was a write up, and it was and it said Glenn's a goner, and it was basically like I had no chance at all. And I remember, I remember being absolutely just just like oh, wow, people think I'm going to get beat, and it was at that moment I had a little private moment thinking, Glenn, how much do you want this? How much do you want this? And I thought, I'm prepared to die for this. I'll die for I'll die for this. I bet he's not. And at that moment, when I realized how much how much I was prepared to give, then I knew that the title was mine. And it went the full twelve rounds. The judges' scorecards were absolutely unanimous and absolutely you won virtually every round according to some of the judges and become the champion of the world something that you dreamed about even in the dark times when you were losing fights glenn um and yet i've read about it uh, it was a, it was a difficult and an emotional night for you and day uh, following in that it was in some ways the best day of your life in some ways the worst feeling because you'd done everything you set out to do and of course it it also involved your brother David, who we'd heard about. He, who by this stage I think was in his wheelchair bound with muscular dystrophy, but he was there that night supporting you. He was there. He wasn't supposed to be there. My mum, my mum wouldn't go to the. It all got too much for, um, for her nerves at that point by the fighting in big fights like that, and and she wasn't going to go. And because she wasn't going to go, she looked after David, so David couldn't go, and he he had been ill just previous to that so so they they were going to go so they they stayed in a in my andy's house um which is just a few hundred yards for the venue and they were just gonna you know flick the tv on at the end she wasn't even gonna watch it on tv so david was gutted but by some miracle and i don't know and nobody knows who did it the police sirens went off and and my mom at first was 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 really really worried because she thought something must have happened in the fight something very bad had happened in the fight because the sirens outside the police knocked on the door and they said get david get in the car we're taking you to the fight wow so, <laughs> but the, the strange thing is nobody knew my mom was at my andy's you know she wasn't at home no so um it's still a mystery today but the police come running in with david kicked the doors in dragged them put them ringside it was you know right at the closing of the fight and I remember looking down, and it was like a miracle. All of a the sudden, there's my there's my little brother, there's my little baby. You know, there's my brother sitting there in a wheelchair with a smile, as as big, because and and you know, in a, in a lot of ways, David, the relationship with David was he would never give in. So so I couldn't give in. You know, I used to see him every day, and he would fall down but get back up. And it was how how can I'm never I'm not going to let my little brother down. Unfortunately, um, the uh, the illness that he had eventually uh, took him from us at a, at a young age. And I remember reading an interview uh, with you um, saying saying that that was the night you realised just how much you loved your brother. Well, uh, he was he was originally we just thought he had a he walked a little bit funny, you know, and he, he wore glasses. And I used to get him on my back and carry him to school. And and then bit by bit. Um, he started to get a little bit worse. Then they did an operation to try and fix his legs, uh, and that that didn't work. And then it about fit, uh, well, it was round about the time I won the junior ABA title. So this was what my life was was kind of like. I had a great elation, but then it was kind of back down to earth because my my mom was told David had Friedrich's ataxia. David was 15. The doctor was actually quite surprised that he was still alive, mm. and that was the, that was the first time we ever knew that he had 
something wrong with him that was, you know, was terminal. But he he lived, you know, so he was going to go at 14. He fought and fought and fought for life till till his body was 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 nothing, was crumbled and and uh, you know and, and but lasted till he was 29. So. Of all the McCrories, he's probably the best fighter of the lot. Uh, Glenn, um, you, uh, as you were the uh, IBF uh, w- World uh, Cruiserweight title holder, you made two defences of the title. The first against uh, South Africa's, I've got to get his name right here, Cesar Makatini. Makatini, uh, Makatini. Yes. Um That was a successful defence. What are your memories of that night? My memories, first, first of all, I just I need to go back just to, to tell you about um, the, the, the world title fight. The, the night with Pat Rillabomba, when, yes, I, won the, when yes. I won the world title, it was the best night of my life. Mm. The next morning, I woke up and it was the worst moment of my life. How come? Because I had no, no more dreams. I had achieved what I, I had achieved. My, what everybody said I couldn't, couldn't achieve, I had achieved it. I had made no plans. I had, I had no... I had I had not wanted to to defend it, or I'd never even ever dreamt of what would happen after that. So it was kind of for the first time I woke up. I didn't want to go for a run. I didn't want to. I didn't. I the hunger had gone, and it was such such a such a, a weird such a weird feeling that it it must be like you've climbed Everest, you know, and then you know you've got to go you've got to go back down, or are you gonna are you gonna climb it? No, you've done it. And that was the, what it was like. So, so it got it got hard for me. I hear what you're saying, but did it? That might be a, a, something you feel a day or two after a fight, sort of a come down. Did it stay with you that feeling? But did it become it's, a demotivational it is, it, factor? It stayed with me, you know, for the rest, you know, for the rest of my. It'll stay with me for the rest of my days. You know, I I I, I did. I won the world title, and from there on, every, everything was a struggle. I, I would have retired. That I would have retired there and then at 24 and won the world title if I'd made a million. If I'd made a million dollars instead of fifteen thousand dollars, which I got paid, which 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 equated to seven and a half thousand pounds, and and you know to say how bad financially off we were at that time and how much I, I obviously had to continue. If anybody remembers on the night of it on it was an ITV fight, it was. It was, you know, big Jim Watt and Reg yeah. were, were, were commentating. It was a big, big night. Um, I got the microphone. They said, you know, they give me the microphone at the end of the fight. My, my after, my Rocky speech was, I'd like to thank everybody, but most of all, Stanley Doloffers, because I'm not coming <laughs> off. I'm not, sorry, Stanley Doloffers, because I'm not coming back. And I officially signed off the dole. After I won the world title, because I, I was still claiming unemployment benefit. That's how little I was wow. being paid. Um, well, you you did you did beat um, the, the South African uh, Makatini, um, but your second defense of the title in March 1990 in Gateshead, uh, you ran into an American called Jeff Lampkin, and you didn't win. No, I didn't. And you know, quite frankly, it was a fight that that had I had things been different, I I would have I would have beat Lampkin. But I was given, I got about I got five weeks notice about my own world title fight when I used to blow up. Yeah, you know, I was boxing at 38, which was very hard for me to make. I had no diet, no nutritional advice whatsoever. So simply Lampkin, my only training was saunas and sweat blankets and boiling the weight off and all the rest of it. And then I went into that fight knowing I was going to lose. I went into that fight praying that I wouldn't get seriously injured. This is how badly I was actually even thinking in my in in my mind. I ordered, I got a suit made. I got <laughs> I got a suit made. Um, Two days before the fight, I never ever wore that suit ever. It was like I was even doing silly things, you know. I think 
that's how much weight I'd taken off past the danger level. Luckily for me, Mike Tyson couldn't hurt me with a body shot. Nobody could hurt me with a body shot. But it was a, thank God it was a body shot, and I was too weak, and, and it was a body shot that took me. If it, if it had been a struggle and a long fight, you know, I could have been very, very seriously hurt. Well, listen, thank goodness you weren't. Um, you took a, a, a nearly a year out after that, um, and then you, you won another fight uh, against a man called American called Terry Armstrong before one of the biggest fights of your career at heavyweight um, when you fought Lennox Lewis. I want to talk about that fight, and then I want to talk about the remainder of your career, which ended up, uh, oddly enough, in a, in a fight in Moscow. The one British journalist who was with, with you in Moscow that night when you had your last fight, of course, he was there for Lennox Lewis as well, and indeed has remained your great friend and saw all of your fights, I'm just about to say. He is, of course, the chief sports writer for the Newcastle Evening Chronicle and your great mate, John Gibson. Hello, John. Hi, good evening. Listen, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, Not at all. Glenn has told the story in great detail so far for us. Pick us up with uh, the excitement when Glenn, having lost his world title, um, gets in with Lennox Lewis. I mean, by this stage, of course, he's a household name. And this was a very big fight, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Lennox had actually been on Glenn's undercard up here in Gateshead um, when Lennox was making his way as an unbeaten heavyweight. And then I'm sure Glenn will tell the story when you ask him about Lewis. But I mean, really, that was a, a fight he took on so he could pay the taxman. He had a 70 grand bill and called Lennox out um, simply to get the tax paid. Um, and it was, uh, Glenn was one of the most unfortunate people in the world because the cruiserweight limit then was 13.8, which is absolutely ridiculous. He wasn't a natural cruiserweight in terms of size and he wasn't a natural heavyweight in terms no, of he was, he, he was caught between the weights in a way that he wouldn't be now because, of course, they've changed the weights. Absolutely so. Absolutely um, so. Glenn, is that, is that right? You, you called out the great Lennox Lewis, because she needs to pay a bill. I did, I did. The, the, the boxing, the boxing rat is dinner. I should have just, I should have just went bankrupt. But you know, I, I kind of my management, my management, my management after I'd, after I'd lost the world title, just went off to America, taking half the money with them. I was left with with a big tax bill and no expenses, nothing for training camp, nothing to show for it. So I had, I, I got a, a big billion. My only thing was I need to pay this bill. So the only way I thought I could do it was there was one fighter who needed, he needed names on his record. He needed, he needed world champs to fight. And, and, and that was Lennox. So after he sat and luckily enough, we went to the Savoy and he was sitting across, across from me at the boxing right is dinner. So I said a few, a few things about his, his waving of the Canadian flag and all, you know, his, his credibility and, a few other things, and asked to fight him in the car park, and he, he hadn't fought anybody, so Lennox stood up. He knew exactly what I was doing. Yeah. Lennox stood up, stood up, faced up. We had a face-off. Suddenly, the, the camera, the, obviously, it's all it's the boxing writers, so the press are there, and the, all the press are there. So that was it. It's me and Lennox. I mean, and it, it's a bit, I mean, I'm going to say John Gibson, um, it's, a bit, it's a bit hard to swallow this. Two of the nicest people in boxing pretending they don't like each other. It's, it's, it doesn't work, does it? <laughs> well, I, it's it's the game the way it is, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is, it, it is. They sort of face off before the fight and the kiss and cuddles afterwards. <laughs> I mean, I was I was terrified, as Glenn was telling you, I was terrified when he fought Lampkin because I thought he could quite easily die. And it's the only time as a press man I've stood up and shouted into the ring when 
when uh, Glenn went down with a body shot, not to get up because he could have been killed if he'd got up. Yeah. Um, it was different with Lennox. Um, with Lennox, there was no weight problem, but the problem was he had hands like sledgehammers. And yeah, then, the problem was Lennox there. <laughs> he yeah, was Lennox. <laughs> with Lennox, yes. <laughs> I went all the way down to the Royal Albert Hall to watch Glenn because I, I saw all his fights and I was terrified in case I dropped the uh, programme and missed a knockout, if you know what I mean. I mean, Glenn's knockout of, uh, of Lennox, of course, not the other way on. Sure, sure. <laughs> now, listen, guys, you lost that fight, uh, Glenn, and uh, and you went back to cruiserweight and your fighting career, you had some more victories, but it eventually uh, fizzled out in a, in a strange place um, in the CSKA Moscow Stadium in Russia <laughs> in 1993 when you lost to uh, a guy called Alfred Cole. Now, look, I don't want to talk about that. I, I want to say to John Gibson... There's a problem here with your friend uh, Glenn McCraw, isn't it? Because he's oh, been because, because he's been on Sky Sports yes. and because he's so erudite about the game of boxing and brings such insight, he's more famous now as a commentator than he was as a boxer. I think Glenn is hugely underrated. As a among, boxer? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, I, I think he's hugely underrated, but uh, not by me and not by people that know up here. He is... He is our only ever world boxing champion. I'm talking about Tyneside. And as such, has a very, very special place in people's hearts. But it is true that that um, a career can you know, pass you by, and you do so brilliantly in the second career. The whole reason for being in boxing is forgotten. But, I mean, even that fight in Moscow was, was totally memorable because it was the first one after the wall had come down and communism had... Uh, been kicked out of Russia. It was the first pro world title fight ever held in Russia wow. because, of course, of all amateurs. It was also the first fight where I've been to where you had to check your gun in yes, before you totally. went into the arena. We heard about you uh, losing um, that title fight uh, with Alfred Cole in Russia. And now, of course, we know you as one of our foremost uh, boxing commentators, always on, uh, seems to be on Sky Sport. Why did you decide to retire, and how did you make the transition to the media? I, I had wanted to retire after I won the world title, as, as I thought, but I needed to financially to carry on. After Lennox, you know, there's a couple of times I retired after I lost to Lampkin, um, and, I, and I, come, I come out of retirement just to try and get the money for, that I needed for Lennox. Having done that, it was the only time I've ever... You know, my pride was too much that I, I, I took a fight. You know, and I trained, and I, and I, I worked hard... But it was for the wrong reasons, you know. I, I wasn't doing it to win, and I'd always fought to win. So my pride wouldn't let me retire like that. I, I had to, I had to try and see if there was anything left. So it was really fighting Al Cole and getting back to a world title. We got a nutritionist. You know, we had a good trainer in the corner. You know, I trained with the, with the army at Carrick. You know, three years later, yeah. I made the I made the weight perfectly. That showed I could have been a world champion for a lot longer. Had I had the right people around me, and that you know that 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 that's an important thing for 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 youngsters turning pro to make sure that they've got a they've camp. They've got the right firm. They've got yeah. the right people, the right people around them, because it's very much it, it's an individual sport, but it's a team sport. And if you haven't got the right people, it can be a very very poor sport. You're know, very very bad sport. How did how did you get into the media? The media. I, I won the world title, um, and I did an interview with a with a, a, f a fabulous guy called Ian Dark. Mm -hmm. and, and we did an interview for for the BBC, for the radio, and it was so he was so engaging, and he, he asked so many great questions, and and 
you know, I'm very passionate about the sport and I love it. And I'm, you know, I, I read all the, the old books and I've got a great, you know, the history of boxing. When somebody's knowledgeable like that, when I'm talking to somebody like that, and he brought all that out, um, and then he commentated, and the commentary on on radio that evening was absolutely superb. It was absolutely superb the com the the commentary on the radio, and 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 that was Ian. And then Ian Ian moved to um, Ian had moved to another another company, a new Nestlin, a new company that had come up. I think they suggested to him who who do you want to work with, and he said for the very first show. He said, "Well, I've just, you know, we've just had somebody win the world title, Glenn McCrory. Um, he's in the northeast. He's not very well known, but he's passionate about boxing. He talks well and yeah. all the rest of it. So, so that was that was the that was the start of it. And it wasn't it, at the time. I think it was it was the old Eurosport, but that was back in 1989. Wow. It then became it then became Sky. Um, I, I was also doing some work for um, BSB. They, they amalgamated." It became B Sky B, and the rest is 26 years later. Well, it's it's an incredible. I mean, for anybody to keep anything going on television for 26 years is remarkable. Um, let me ask you an almost impossible question. Um, uh, in that 26 years, you've been to h hundreds of fights. You've seen thousands of boxers. What are the highlights and lowlights? Do you think? What are the things that, if if you were put against a wall, you'd say, "Oh, I remember that day." So many great, great fights. Madison Square Garden with Oscar De La Hoya was one of my great, great experiences in New York, the city that I love. One of the worst was Andrew Galotta, Riddick Bowe, the riot in the same, very same venue when there was a terrible atmosphere and you just knew something was going to go wrong and the whole place erupted into a, a mass riot. Following careers, following careers of, of, of Tyson, of, of Lennox, of Oscar De La Hoya, of, of the great, the great names, the great British fighters, uh, Joe Calzaki and Ricky mm. Hatton, and you know it's 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 going on for you know it's almost three decades of of covering the sport. It's been fantastic. There's been very there's been low moments like Michael Watson when I was doing that, and that that was for for radio. My great friend, you know, who who I love to death, Spencer Oliver, when I had to commentate on him when he was critically, you know, he was critically ill and the, the paramedics are in and he's off the hospital and he's in a coma and you know that's the sport you know we love it, it but it has its extremes it has its wonderful wonderful nights and but sometimes it has its very dark nights it does indeed and you know part of your job now let's not beat around the bush here part of most of the people who work for the big television companies to hype up the big fights they're nearly all title fights now there's a lot of belts there's a lot of uh, things do you do you still enjoy the fights down the card where two guys are making their way and they they'll wail the tar out of each other for six rounds with virtually nobody watching well you know You've just got to think, John mentioned earlier, on my undercard, Lennox Lewis was sure. once like that. That's where everybody starts. So I think that's that's as important because all of a sudden you just, every now and again, you see somebody and you see you just see a gem and you just know that they're going to go on and they're going to be something really, really special. So I think it's great. I, I, I haven't seen Ricky Hatton from, from an 18-year-old and seen a young Manny Pacquiao, seeing fighters like that. And then watching them develop and become become the great fighters, you know that that they become is is a very very is very very special. Tell me about some of the other people you've met um, through your work with Sky. I mean, for instance, uh, uh, outside of boxing, you mentioned earlier on that one of your great heroes is George Best. George Best, yes, I, and George works for Sky. Um, bless him. His he's Northern Ireland. My family uh, originate from from Northern Ireland. Do you know but which he part? Was, 
Tyrone. Okay, I'm, in Tyrone. I, I'm only asking because my producer would want to know exactly what part of Northern Ireland. <laughs> that's all. In, in my family, my, my, my kid, my kids' his grandparents are. Um, my, my missus is Donegal, so I'm going to say up Donegal. <laughs> so um, I'll get murdered if I don't say that. So, uh, but you, you were talk, uh, but yeah, talking about George. George, yeah, yeah. He, uh, my hero. I kind of had a, uh, and I don't know if this is a good thing or a, or a, or a bad thing, but um, I managed to have a. You know, can you imagine if you if you're out and you're having a drink with your with you know, you're drinking with we're bestie and mm-hmm. you know, I knew his reputation and, and all the rest of it, but the couple of times I was drinking with him, he went to bed early. Oh I was like, Whoa. So I either he'd reformed or you're a fantastic drinker. Oh I don't say that. <laughs> don't say that. No, no, it's just um you know, he was he was great having you know, I've 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 met people like Tom Jones and I remember doing a fight with one of Lennox's fights and I was doing commentary and I was doing in the studio. So I was running up and down between the ah. up and down between the studio and on one as I'm clambering over, I put my arm on somebody's shoulder and I'm I'm like, excuse me, and he turns around this Jack Nicholson who's a big fight fan and and he was like, Don't you worry, young man, don't you and it was Brilliant. so that was great. And I've got to say uh, I had a wonderful. I met. I inter- we interviewed a guy a few years ago called Michael Flatley, the dancer, Lord yeah, yeah. of the Dance, and he just got in touch with me. He's a mass. He got in touch with me and invited me to his last show. He's, he's, he's like he's, says he's my biggest fan, and and, and we had a fantastic. He was absolutely brilliant. He was he was such a lovely, lovely man. He took us backstage. Met the cast, but what a knowledge on boxing! And he says, probably better than your knowledge of dancing. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, better than my dad's. But he, he, you know, he talked about he, he knew all my he knew all my fights. He talked wow. about my career. You know, it really is a massive boxing fan. And he said, whenever you're on Sky, just remember oh, the fights I'm watching you. Ah. So, <laughs> so, well, listen, so he was great. Li- listen, clearly you've had a very exciting time, but you wouldn't have. Um, been doing this for a quarter of a century unless you were really excellent at it. Let's let's talk to somebody who's worked with you for many, many of those years. Of course, a brilliant commentator himself and these days head of boxing at Sky on the uh, absolutely recognisable voice. Delighted to uh, welcome to the show, Adam Smith. Hello, Adam. Hi, how are you doing? Very, very good <laughs> Hello. indeed. Hello, I mean, Glenn. Hi, mate. I mean, the way Glenn tells it, he sort of stumbles into the media and he does a bit <laughs> here and he does a bit of talking, but there's much more to that. He's a brilliant broadcaster. What are his attributes, do you think, Adam? He's a fantastic broadcaster and year by year he's, uh, he's gathered gravitas and huge experience to, to the role of commentator, analyst, uh, boxing expert, and, and also just a fabulous guy to be around. I mean, we've had so many trips over so many years, um, you know, going right back. And, and I don't think I'd have ever got anywhere near Mike Tyson if it hadn't been for, for Glenn. You know, yeah. we pitched out wedding for, for Mike to interview him. Of course, you know, uh, Glenn had many rounds of sparring with Mike back in his heyday. Um, and also, you know, he was, he was so important when we were covering Lennox Lewis because, of course, he shared a ring with Lennox. So, you know, Lennox had huge respect for him. So Glenn has been uh, a confidant, a partner, uh, you know, a, a, a friend, uh, and then everything, really. We work so closely at Sky. The team is, uh, is, is very tight-knit. And, um, you know, Glenn's been at Sky for 25 years, for a quarter of a century. We celebrated that at a, at a do in Newcastle just before Christmas last year. And I've been there for now 21 years. And, and you know, we've gone through so much and, and seen so many different fighters and, you know, whether it's the, the top level, 
Michael Guy's, the Oscar De La Hoya's, the, the Roy Jones's, the Floyd Mayweather's, all the journeymen or the, you know, the sort of the, the guys from the Mexican backstreets, the promoters like Don King, Frank Maloney, who became obviously recently Kelly Maloney, Frank mm-hmm. Warren, Eddie Hearn and Barry Hearn, all sorts of sort of, you know, amazing uh, fight figures. And, and Glenn's been you know, so much part of it for Sky. And, and what I love about him is that, you know, when he, when he goes on air, he's not afraid to speak his mind time yeah. and again and, and go against the grain if need be. Um, and I think that, you know, when you hear Glenn speak, you, you know he speaks with authority um, because not only has he been in the ring, but he's been around so many fighters for so long Adam, that he has just, huge respect. Uh, I was just about to, uh, to rather rudely interrupt you to say almost exactly that. You described the action, and you've talked about your other colleagues, Jim Watt and, and Johnny Nelson, etc. At Sky, but for me, the person who I listen to when I want to know what the boxers are going through in the, in the middle of a fight, Glenn, in a sentence, will tell you what you can't possibly know because you haven't been there yourself. Um, he will tell you, the, the viewer, what's happening with the boxers in their minds. I think that's the key. You know, I learned under Ian Dark, and, and there's no better lead commentator in, in British sport than Ian. And, and, and I think the key with, with Ian and Glenn, and then, then later when I had the privilege of working alongside Glenn and, and Jim Watt and others, but, you know, Glenn reads a fight so well. You know, he's been in there, and, and, and that's what you want to know. You want to know what a fight is feeling, what a fight is thinking, how a fight is moving. And, um, you know, he's, he's, he's just so good at hitting it so quickly. I mean, he scores a fight terrifically well as well, but, but the, the feeling you get, and I think in commentary, it's a, it's a conversation, and because we get on you know, off camera as well, it, it's really important, and because we've seen so much together, I think that, that comes through, but you know, there's no one better than Glenn at sort of you know, picking up what, what happens, and as I said, you know, we've got a great cast of characters ourselves with, with Jim and, you know, and, and Johnny and, and new guys like Carl Froch you know, adding to the team, but, but Glenn's been there through thick and thin, and I think that He's a vital part of Sky and everything that we've uh, we've achieved. And, I, and, and you'll be the, the, the latest person to whom I, I'm going to say this, Adam. I think that Glenn's achievements as a boxer are now overshadowed almost by his achievements as a broadcaster. I think the next time the two of you appear on camera, he should be forced to wear his world title belt over his suit. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I mean, you know, becoming a world champion is the ultimate in, in boxing. And I know that that particular night where he won the world title was, was really special for Glenn. But, you know, after that, you, you can't just sit on your laurels, you know, Every every sportsman or sportswoman has has got to retire at some point, and I think it's you know it's been great for Glenn that he he, he sort of you know fell straight into the media and at a time when Sky was a baby, you know Sky was very small, and he's grown with it, and and now obviously you know we're we're a, we're a massive company, and I think Glenn's seen it through the years, you know, um, from ringside and also from from other other you know parts and, and meeting different people over over the time and see it how it's how it's grown and the fact he's there and now he can help the, the younger guys come through as well. And, uh, but, you know, I mean, with, with Glenn, Glenn and I, it's been the road trips, really, the, the times we've gone to sort of, you know, Florida to Mexico to, you know, commentate at ringside on, on greats like Marco Antonio Barrera. I remember going over for the Corrales-Castillo third fight, the one that never happened, the first one, which was, was thrilling, the second one, which was, you know, won fairly easily. And then the third one, it was, it was all set, and, and the fight never happened. And Glenn and I were over there for a few days together, and, you know, it's just that, that sort of that those memories being ringside for the Lewis Holyfield draw, the scandalous draw, the controversy in New York or being there for, for Nassim Hammond and Kevin Kelly in the garden. You know, great.
great nights, and, and I think that those memories will stick with us forever. Well, I like I like to think of the two of you in a sort of running remake of The Hangover. But what happens? <laughs> what, what happens in Madison Square Gardens, guys, stays in Madison Square Gardens. Thank Adam, I think so. Adam, listen, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Cheers, uh, cheers, uh, Adam Smith. They're the most familiar voice in British boxing these days, and head of boxing at Sky Sports. Just giving us a, an idea of what it's like to work with Glenn McCrory. Glenn, we'll talk about some of your activities away from the broadcasting these days. But mm-hmm. before that, I'd like to, I guess the most high-profile thing that's happened to you in recent uh, months was a, a, a strange court case. Uh, in fact, it never came to court in the end, but uh, you, were, you were arrested and you were under suspicion of all kinds of things, not paying a taxi fare and, <laughs> and, and, also, and also assaulting I somebody. And I thought, I, did, I must I admit, know. I thought, Glenn, I thought, hang on, if Glenn McCrory assaults somebody, surely there's no witnesses. I mean, he won't be able to talk about it. But I know, I know it's a, it's now you're laughing now. But I know that you <laughs> you've recently had your sixth child, and and even that very happy event was rather overshadowed by this thing hanging over you. What happened? It was, it was, it was really. I mean, I'd I'd been would been for a couple of drinks with with Gibbo, and, and it was really quite a a misunderstanding. I think I got a I got a a cab driver on a bad on a bad night, mm-hmm. and it was. The fair that the fair that was I, I was actually just I was five minutes away I was round the corner and I, instead of walking across the the fields, John said jump and jump and jump in that taxi, so I jumped in the taxi and then when we pulled off it was it was I said I'm, I need to go to the uh, mm-hmm. where I live just which is five minutes away and he just get out and walk why don't you walk so he, he just straight away had a, a, an attitude which gave me an attitude yeah. Um, it then, it then, it then got into a sort of, um, I'm, I'm, you know, probably shouted at him and said, like, you know, you, you, you take, just take me home, just take me home. And then he said, well, you know, no. So that's all it was. But I, you know, being being pretty stubborn, I was sort of, I wanted to be taken home. He didn't, so he phoned the police. When that happens, I thought, well, you're gonna look ridiculous. He then, I think, must have panicked and said, I'd, I'd. I'd hit him. I said, the, I said to the the police officer, "I'm Glenn McCrory, former champion of the world. Surely you would, if I, you know, I've either lost my exactly, pudge, exactly. I've lost my pudge altogether, or or you would have some mark or some injury. But when they've had when they've had a complaint, um, they have to act on it. So that so then they they had to they had to, they had to arrest me. Really got quite um, bizarre." Because as I'm coming, you know, as I'm coming on the police station, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting, I'm taking selfies. You know, the, the police are taking selfies with me and that sort of stuff, <laughs> which was, you know, so it was kind of like, okay, well, fair enough. Um, you know, everything's going to be okay. But I think what happened was there was a, ba- there, there was obviously there was a, there was a backlog of, of things going through the court. So it shouldn't have really went to court. It shouldn't have really got to court because the ch- charges were dropped. But, but I think by the backlog, it meant I had to appear the first time. And so then when I went to court, I said, I don't even know, you know, we've had, we, we, we don't even know what the charges are. Um, so then it was, you know, it was, it was put back and then it was thrown out. So it was all, it was all just a, a huge misunderstanding that, but it's funny how things can, can certainly spiral out of control. And it's a little, it's a little, you know, it was, it was certainly a little reminder of, of, you know, the problem I have and I think a lot of big people have have this is you you all of a sudden you know if somebody raises their voice if 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 somebody's five foot two and they raise their voice and they've had a drink they they just you know 
people laugh at them like, oh, yeah. don't, don't be stupid. If you're six foot four and you're you're an ex world champion and you raise your voice, you're all of the sudden you're intimidating. That sometimes comes across if you're a big guy. Um, it, it comes across that you're threatening or you're intimidating. I, you know, it's just because of your your size or your status. Well, and indeed, and, and you also you used the word status there, and of course the the issue for the police, bless them is that if you're a public figure, they have to investigate it. Otherwise, someone will go to the newspaper and say he's got off because he's famous. Of course, of right. course. And, and, you know, and, and, and that was fine. They were doing the job. Um, you know, I mean, there was no hard feelings. At the end of the day, everything was sorted out and, you know. Well, thank, thank goodness for that. Um, you've made, we've already talked about your career on television and the radio, um, but you've also done a lot of other things other than the, the sports commentary. You've, um, you've made TV documentaries. You've uh, been a boxing trainer. And you've also uh, been done some acting. Now, uh, I don't want to overplay the acting, uh, no pun intended, but you did audition <laughs> to be James Bond. I did. I did, the Geordie <laughs> Bond. It was, it was funny that when I went to the audition, that was, um, and after the audition, my agent at the time said, um, oh, this, this is, this is um, so funny. Can you imagine, can you imagine a Geordie Bond? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, it'd be like a Scottish one as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, but actually, in fact, you were beaten, I think, by an Irish one in the form of Piers Brosnan, oh, yeah? I, was, I, was, yeah. I know, Piers well, Brosnan got it. Li- yeah. All right, well, I li- think I think he might have done a little bit better than me, if I'm honest. Uh, I think they made the right, the right choice. Well, listen, the um, you have you have acted on TV. You were in a, a Tyne Tees uh, drama called Keyside. And like every self-respecting actor, you've been in Casualty. It was great. I was, uh, I, we were filming similar episodes. I met a, a friend there, Ray Winston. Uh-huh. I met them, um, you know, we become, we become friends. Ray, from he them. loves it, boxing. Yeah, he loves his boxing. And, you know, obviously um, we got on great and... And, and you know, have remained have remained friends ever since. But I did, you know, our friends in the north, and I did um, Keyside mm-hmm. Casualty. There was, you know, I, I, you know, I had an agent at one time. It was going, it was going, it was, you know, I was doing really well, and I was getting, I had more income from from that than anything else. But then it got to the point, it got to the point where I was, I was literally, I did a, a, a TV series in in the northeast called Keyside, which was six weeks and then doing sky i was literally i was never home i was just away constantly and um and it got to the point where i you know i had to make a, a decision of, of of what you know when true loves you know two, yeah. two loves you know because i loved i loved my, my my time acting and doing stuff things like that and you know i'd i'd do it again but um it was it was the decision sky was starting off and you know it was very busy with sky so it was one of the two and obviously my love, you know, my great love is boxing, and that's what I was best at, and I made the right decision. You have made serious documentaries as well for TV. Yes, I've made three three documentaries. Uh, one of about Huey Gallagher, which won won an award. This is me and John Gibson. We sit, me and Gibbo, <laughs> my my pal. We sit and have when we sit and we have a few drinks. We sit and have, you know, we've got we're very much ideas people. You know, and we're always we're always thinking of something to do. So we come up with an idea for. A, a story about um, legends that have lost, and, and we had one in the northeast, a great footballer called Huey Gallagher, mm-hmm. um, who kind of is not remembered, and yet had a great, had a great, great career, and was a great, a great player, but then tragically took his own life, and and and, and we wanted to sort of wonder, you know, what what his career was about, and why why is he forgotten, and it was called Looking for a Legend, we and we won a, an award for that. We also did. Um, 
the meanest man on the planet. And this was again me and John just talking about who, who in his day Sonny Liston was the was the of was course. the mean man who was meaner than more. You know, fighters are are tough, but normally, you know, they're normally friendly guys. There's there's every now and again you get somebody who's like just a real mean guy. In in his era, it was Sonny Liston who John met and interviewed. And in my era, I had my time with Mike Tyson. So we, we did a show called Meanest Man on the Planet. And it was looking, we went to Ve Las Vegas to film it. And it was looking at who we thought was the, was the, was the toughest of the tough, wow. your, in, your inside and outside the ring. And, um, and that, that, you know, really enjoyed my time with that. And then funnily enough, uh, this is how strange things happen during the Lennox Lewis fight. Lennox Lewis, Mike Tyson. I got, I went to see, I love Jerry Lee Lewis. So I thought I'd go and see Jerry Lee Lewis um, concert. I uh -huh. went to see him. I met, I met a couple of guys who promote him. They said, Yo, Jerry loves his boxing. Will you, will you please come in in the dressing room? So, <laughs> so I'm in the dressing room. Then I'm, in, I'm on the I'm on the stage with him when he did his whole performance. It was just amazing. So. I'd, I'd remembered reading reading his book that in his book he'd said that the, his favorite place he ever played was was the city hall in Newcastle, England. Wow! Uh, and I was like, whoa! So when I mentioned that, he said, "Yeah, it was it was you know back on his tour in the 50s. It was he said I loved it. I've never known I've never known fans like that. They absolutely were were great. So I said, would you come back? So we organized we we got him back and we he did a concert at the city hall. And we filmed it. It was called Great Balls of Fire Pet. Now, we're going to talk about your love of food in just a second, but there's one other thing I, I wouldn't forgive myself if I didn't, um, if I didn't ask you about. Uh, it says here in my notes, you are the Deputy Lord Lieutenant of Northumberland. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> that means I actually represent the Queen, which I'm not sure if the uh, Her Majesty knows that. I'm sure I should have been does. more polite sure to you, I think. Know. No, it's, it's a wonderful honour um, bestowed on me by the Duchess of Northumberland. And it, it basically, I, I, I represent, the Duchess represents the Queen on, on engagements that she doesn't do. And, and so obviously the, we, they have some deputy lieutenants who represent the Duchess. Um, and I was picked to be that. And it's, an, it's something that you have till you're 75 years of age. Alan Shearer has the same. Wow. Al, Alan is one. Steve Harmiston is one. And, and I think, you know, lots of notable dignitaries in, in, in Northumberland are deputy lieutenants as well. And it's, 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 you know, so I will go, I was at the, I represent the Duchess last week at the, the, the school games, the athletics. Do you have to dress up in a strange medieval costume? No, 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 <laughs> no, not usually. Okay, no, no, <laughs> but no. It's, no. But it's lovely. It's, um, we, you know, we have dinner and we, um, up at the castle and a few times. And um, I'm, I'm actually, I've got a, a real good one this weekend because um, I'm, Tom Jones is playing at Annick Castle. Yeah, beautiful Annick Castle. Yes, and I'm 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 there I'm there as a representing representing Northumberland, representing the Duchess for that. So 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 that's you get some little perks, but it's 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 great because you go around you know to to schools. Um, we were as I say the the athletics and and just carry, you know open some nice functions and and. Uh, yeah. Go go and visit carers and and that sort of stuff. Well, listen, I, lots I, of charity stuff. Well, good for you. Well done. Um, Remember to get this right, Deputy Lord Lieutenant. Thank you very <laughs> much indeed. Um, I also, uh, when I put out on my Twitter feed earlier today, the fact that I was meeting you and I asked for questions or comments. Perhaps the weirdest one was somebody I've never heard of. Didn't even know they followed me on Twitter. Said, 
This is a question for Glenn McCrory. When is he going to take me to a Manchester United game at Old Trafford? <laughs> yes. Do you she know might, somebody, she, you know somebody she, called Nicola Mills? She, yes, just my partner. She, <laughs> might, she might have a long wait. She might, she might have a wait. She's dying to get me. She's been the, she comes to, the, to Newcastle when Man U um, come here, but I'm not sure if I'm going there. Well, but, but there's, there's more detail. I told her I would ask you, and then it goes on to say, I prefer a Liverpool game, but Chelsea or Manchester City is good too. I've not been to one since I met him. Hashtag disappointed. Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> my word. Well, it, it could have went in that list. That's, she's I'm gone quite, public. She's gone public with I'm this quite, now. She's I'm, calling you out. I'm quite happy with that, because if she's just stopped there, that's great. All right. <laughs> now, listen, Glenn, um, earlier on, we talked about your, your weight problems, but they were, they were a professional issue because you're a boxer trying to fit into a smaller boxer's body. Um, but you you do love food. And as I, as I understand it, you really are a top-class chef. Is that right? Well, I, I don't know if I'm top-class, but it, it is. It, it's boxing's my life. Um, food's my passion. And it always has been since since I used to cook for my mom when I was about six years old. Um, you know, having older brothers who were brother and sister, that would they would go out. A little time I got, and the younger ones would go to bed. I got a little, a little time with my mom when I would, and I must have been, seven or something but it was my time when I got and I would do a uh, start cooking for my mom she'd be um, and it was only Chinese in, in a box and that sort of stuff mm-hmm. but it just it was it was just the love of my mom's my mom's not an exact uh, an exotic cook but when you got my mom she loves feeding people so you know she always, there's always a meal it doesn't matter what you, you know if the postman comes you know he'll get something to eat <laughs> you know it's, it, it's it's that sort of that sort of household so that's instilled in me um you know, wanting to feed people and, and, a, and, a love, and a love of food. And, I mean, for instance, I know that the new football season, you, uh, you cook uh, uh, for people in a pub overlooking St. James's Park. I do, I do. We just started. Well, I actually, I, I mean, it's from boxing gloves to oven gloves. I had a little gym above the, above the Black Bull um, opposite St. James's Park. And I asked, I asked Steve Burns, the, the boss there, I said, can I, can I change, can I... You know, it was a storeroom, and I said, "Can I do something different in there?" And he's, he's "What do you want to do?" And I said, um, "Can I can I do food?" And he was like, "We've never, never done food here before, you know, for a, since he's been here." Yeah. Um, although there was a little bit of a kitchen up, upstairs in the corner of the gym, so we give. So I said, "We give it a go." He said, "Yep, great, uh, give it a go." So it'll be the McCrory KO burgers and and a whole host. Of, of of other things for myself and my, and my my friend who's a chef called Glenn as well and Ollie Ollie Bernard unfortunately is on holiday but Ollie Bernard who's you know, was great Newcastle player he's he's my partner in this this, this is Olivier Bernard the, Olivia, the Newcastle footballer yeah yeah Olivier Bernard the Newcastle footballer he's French isn't he so he's yeah. going to be you know so he's got a, a love of cooking as well so we do that but we also what we do is we do we do courses for the unemployed. Now tell me and about that's that. That's how it all started. Wait a minute, because I was going to come on to that. You're teaching the unemployed to cook. What would they, would they, would have used them becoming chefs themselves and going back back into the world of work? We got a, we both got asked, and that's how I met Ollie about three years ago. We both got asked to get involved in, in in a course with the unemployed, where they did employability skills in the morning, and then they did and then they did um, a bit of boxing, something to help them to help them with their morale, to help them you know get a little bit fitter. Um, just to feel better about themselves. Self-confidence, all those things, yeah. Yeah, and, and Ollie did the same with football. And we went all around the country, and that was that was excellent. Really enjoyed it, and, and it was very fulfilling. I just thought, for me, I, I didn't think they they got a skill from it. So I, I asked if, if, if we could do a cooking one. So we, 
We went on the, we, and then we did, and we went on um, Marco Pierre White's kitchens and 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 doing doing cooking, and, and they learned various skills. But I just thought they didn't get enough. Obviously, you know, with a reputation like that, they, they weren't going to get loose in the kitchen mm. that much because obviously, you know, it's it's all got to be done, you know, for his, you know, yeah, they, up to his standard. Tell, yeah, of course. So um, so I thought, you know, if 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 I'm if I'm not using this room upstairs. It, it it would be ideal. We've got a bar downstairs, so so they can we can do bar work. We've got a, a little dining room upstairs, so we can teach them silver service. Get somebody in to show them silver service and service. And then we've got the kitchen, and I learn the basic. I learn the basic cooking skills. Then at the end of the week, they cook for employers. You know, and we just did a course a couple of weeks ago, and we had um, Newcastle United and the head chef there. Um, Robert Hendricks just said, and he, you know, he was like, "We'll hire them. We'll use them." Eldon Square, your know, into people said, "You know, we'll do that." So we're getting, we're getting lots of, lots of employers buying into the, into the course. So it's had a very, very good response. So it's me and, me and Ollie, um, you know, as I say, from, from boxing gloves and, and football. To oven gloves. It's fantastic. That's a fantastic scheme because it's having some practical outcome at the end, Glenn. Let me ask you two questions. What is your favourite food to eat, you personally? I just I love I love you know plain food, simple food, but they're cooked very very well. And what about what is your best thing that you cook? The best thing that I cook. Come and taste the McCrory burger. <laughs> it's a burger, is it? Okay. No, no, no. I cook. You know, I love to cook. I've cooked with with Tom Kitchen up in his his wonderful place up up in uh, in Leith in, in Scotland, and and I've worked with him for a day, which was the hardest day's work I've ever done in my life, and it, it was brilliant. So you know, he had me he had me doing all sorts of fillet and fish and and doing pheasant on croot and wow. all sorts of all sorts of stuff. So I love the whole thing of of cooking. People say you watch did you watch that boxing show this boxing show and if, I, if you know I'll take them it's normally I'm watching Rick Stein or or Tom Carriage or the Harry <laughs> Bikers or and, you know that's my favorite that's my um, and the missus you know she has to go in the other room because Nicola <laughs> Nicola gets sick of the sight of cooking. Glenn the, the ring ladies have been in and out of the ring and uh, we're we're into round 12 now and it's a short one I'm afraid. <laughs> You obviously have a very busy life. Um, we heard, of course, you've got a uh, housefuls of kids as well. Um, where are you in your life today, and, and what do you look forward to for the, in, in the years to come? Well, I think I'm, I'm I'm the sort of person that everybody will tell you this. I'm always thinking of stuff. I, I, you know, I, I do love being busy, and sometimes I make myself a bit too busy. And you've 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 said all the different things I like to do. So, I, I just want to carry on with that. You know, I, I love my job. It's it's brilliant. It's very hard to get tired when there's so many good fighters coming through. So so that's great. And um, I've got a lovely family, um, and I've got two two little two little babies who are great great fun, who are complete terrors, beautiful kids and and, and grandkids. So it's um it's always it's always a lot going on in the McCrory household. Well, it sounds like it might go very well, provided you do get her over to Old Trafford sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, I think I might have to do that. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening, and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.